Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Sarah. We're two moms with eight kids between us, and we're the hosts of The Mom Hour. On this show, we're joined by a team of unique mom voices from across the country and in different stages of motherhood to bring you tips, ideas, and encouragement, and to help you feel a little less alone. We all know that motherhood is a lot easier when real moms share honest truths and remind each other that it's all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 386 of the Mom Hour. I am Sarah Powers, here as always with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hi, Sarah. So we are here as always, but what people have just heard is not what they are always here and maybe aren't used to hearing. So I feel like we should talk about it. I think we should. Um, We have a new intro and that doesn't happen very often. We are approaching eight years of this podcast and I think it's our fourth intro, but the one that we just replaced um, has been around for at least three or four years, a long time. And I think it's just as a little behind the scenes peek at the way we do things. We can move really quickly on things sometimes, but... (laughs) Most of the time, like we will circle around an idea or a change for a very long time. So I feel like it's been on our radar that we should probably update the intro. Just, I mean, we don't like change it hugely. This is probably the biggest change. I actually feel like the last two times we literally took the same script and just switched who said what we did that twice and maybe updated the ages of our kids. Um, this felt like we needed to acknowledge that now we are bringing other contributors on more often from our team and things like that. So there was more to say, but it's still not a huge rewrite. It wasn't like, it's not like a, um, a whole totally different show or concept, but it took us a long time to actually just move forward and do that. Well, and sometimes, like you said, sometimes we are hemming, hawing and like overthinking something. Other times it's like we say, oh, you know what? It's probably time we record a new intro. And the other person will be like, yeah, that's a good idea. And literally nothing will happen for like 11 months. And then it'll be like, wait, weren't we going to record a new intro? So I would put this in yeah. that category. It's not like we've been over here worried about doing it or like rewriting the script 200 times. We just would be like, oh, yeah, we should probably do that. And then like when you say to yourself, oh, I should probably get my oil changed. And then like it leaves right. your brain I mean- immediately. So. 
I think the script probably took 10 minutes to rewrite and the recording of it took two minutes to do, but sometimes you just don't have 12 minutes yes. <laughs> that you, you get feel in like your routine. Into something. Just like yeah, everything yeah. else you get in your routine. Um, and then what happened was we did that. And then I forgot to like edit it and send it to our sound engineer. It just <laughs> you sat, felt like it was done. Yeah. Just sat, and then I was like, oh, wait, we, we actually have not aired that thing. Goodness friends. You are hearing yes. the real behind the scenes. I have to also admit that I've really hated the way I've sounded saying, and I'm Megan for the last like four years. Oh, I've I just cringed like every time I've heard it. Well, I've never said because I don't know, like whatever people don't always like the way they say things, but I would hear it be like, why do I sound like I, I don't know, smoked a pack of cigarettes last night or something. I just felt like my voice sounded very deep in it. And so, um, uh, yeah. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you where we were. We were at my parents' house in the same room in Santa Barbara before oh, I had yeah. moved back in a in a really freaky weird heat wave that wasn't normal and there's no air conditioning in a lot of Santa Barbara houses and we were shut up in that upstairs bedroom and That's it was like great. 5 million degrees. So you should blame that. That's why. But I never thought you sounded weird. Um also That's nice to know. You should, listeners, stick around to the very end because for the first time ever in almost eight years, we're going to have a little, I think they call it a bumper or an outro in the profesh world. What's a bumper? Mm. Is that is that a thing at the end? I think a bumper is between, like okay. a bumper goes between segments. So this is, I think, more like an outro okay. because it's just a thing taking us out of the show. Yeah, and like usually we would just do like, that check together. Check us out on Instagram. Yeah, we do yeah. it. We do it um, live or, you know, we say whatever we're going to say to wrap up. But now there's a little prepackaged one. We are truly the slowest professional podcasters on the planet. Man, after eight years, we're finally doing what most people do from their very first episode. But you know, that's just how we roll. Here we are. Here we are. So today's episode is kind of a big one. We've been circling around this idea of how as moms, we consume and interpret and think about data around what really matters in parenting. And there've been a couple of articles recently. And by recently, I mean, they were really like this summer, but again, back to the circling around something and thinking on it for a while. Um, we're just going to have a free flowing conversation about as mothers raising children of various ages, how does it feel to us? How does it, how do we react and how does it play out in our actual lives when there are data and studies and articles published about like, now this is the one thing parents should really care about, or now we're changing yeah. our minds about like whether you should, um, I don't know, give your baby peanuts and all the data. Right. So this is really more of a philosophical discussion. I think it's going to be really interesting. We do have a couple of articles that we're going to banter about. Both uh, were in the Atlantic in this like late spring and early summer 2022, and we will link to them. Um, but I guess, Megan, I just want to open it up with your thoughts on... How do you react when you see a headline like, this is the one thing that really matters in parenting? Well, that literally is the, I believe, the exact title <laughs> of the one um, parenting one decision of the that really matters by yeah. Seth, okay. Seth Stevens Davidowitz. It's, it's clickbait, right? Because, and, and that's fine because that's the world we live in. So my first reaction is like, oh man, here we go. It's like another thing that's going to try to take this very complex topic and boil it down to like one takeaway or the attention grabber. Um, sometimes I do fall for it and I read the article and this one was well done. And um, actually both of the articles that we are talking about were, were well done articles. I think that I'm often conflicted after I read them because I think 
how much can data really tell us about what matters to us as parents? So, so in the case of the one parenting decision that really matters, um, and we'll talk more about what that one parenting decision is as told by this author, according to this author and the research that he um, references, but it's, it only, it, that's only the parenting decision that matters if the outcome that is cited is a priority for you. Right. So say more about that because um, this yeah. is, we are starting with this, the one parenting decision that really matters by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. And you took a little bit of issue with like, by what definition, right? Like what is the end goal? Does it, does it make you feel like he's presuming we all have the same end goal in parenting? Um, well, we'll talk more about the specific things he lays out in the article, but this one is no different from many where um, education level and income are often cited as things that you would look at as an indicator of success right. um, or like a result of good parenting. And I really just take issue with that. It's very, it oversimplifies for one thing. And it also assumes that that's what you and your family value most of, of you know, that that's what you value or would consider success if your kid had a high income and a, a like a master's degree or, or higher or whatever it is. So our education, you know, do I value education? Sure. Do I want my kids to earn um, a decent living? Of course. But that's not how I look at the end of the day and say, well, did I do it right? It just isn't. And so if you're taking issue with that, like that even being the result you're looking for, then right. you kind of throw the whole thing out because then you have to back up and say, well, then what really does matter? And is, is it more intangible? Is right. it the kind of thing that can't really be um, tracked in data points? And some things I think can be that are indicators of what I would consider real success, but a lot of just aren't. Um, I don't know how much research really gets done that gets at the root of how happy and well-adjusted people are. I guess it would be more the stuff that says what they don't do. Like if they don't, you know, like rob a bank or murder anyone, that's probably a good sign that they're not miserable, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot in the middle. So I think this is so interesting. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of all the articles we've read over the years that tend to presume we have the same definition of success of what, like, what is the outcome of parenting? Mm -hmm. And they often spend very little time on defining what that is for the purposes of this particular data set, right? Even the, even the research around happiness, which I think has like for the last 10 or 15 years been a very, very hot topic is pretty debatable in like what, how are we defining quote unquote happiness? And I'm hearing more and more, I guess, discussion about like happiness being a little close to that, like toxic positivity thing that like, uh-huh. is that really yeah. the end goal? Forget parenting, but like living like life, right? <laughs> is, is happiness what we're after? Is it something a little more nuanced or is this all just language and semantics? And maybe we are sort of talking about the same thing and just sort of, um, having trouble defining what it is. But I think that's a really good, if there is like a first takeaway from this episode, maybe it's that when you read a parenting article that tells you a certain approach is quote unquote, like the best or has the best outcomes, I think a really good question to look for in that data is like, how was this, how was success defined? Like you said, in maybe it's um, kids who get a good education and end up like, without, um, addiction issues or like, 
didn't rob a bank or murder someone. Like, what is that (laughs) definition of success? And is it even yours? Yeah. Megan, the end of the school year and kickoff to summer is a busy time of the year for families, but we can all eat stress-free and hit our wellness goals with ready-to-eat meals from our sponsor, Factor. Factor's delicious meals are never frozen and can be ready to eat in just two minutes. You can pick from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular choices like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Plus, they have more than 60 add-ons like breakfast, lunch, snacks, and beverages to keep you fueled all day long. So our team was comparing notes recently on our favorite factor meals. And Katie loved the herb crusted chicken with mashed cauliflower and toasted almond green beans. I loved that one too. And get this, so did her little boy, Charlie. She heated it up for lunch one day and Charlie, who's three, ate almost all of the green beans. I mean, that's quite an endorsement, right? I was going to say what a parenting win. (laughs) And I get it, Charlie. Those green beans are crazy good. And if you really want to treat yourself, they even have meals with filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Listeners, head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour5050 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, Megan. Well, over here at the Mom Hour, we are big fans of our sponsor, Our Place. In fact, you, me, and our team member, Katie, were all comparing notes on our favorite product. Katie was telling us that even though she's packing up to move her family to a new house, she cannot put that mini perfect pot from Our Place into the boxes yet because she's using it like every night. Well, as someone who also has a perfect pot, I got mine as part of their mini home cook duo set. I get it. It's nonstick, which is key, but it also has all these handy features like a steam release lid with a built-in strainer and this nice beechwood spoon that nests on the handle in this perfect little peg. Okay, well, I didn't get this pot, but now I want it. That sounds so great. Our Place's cookware is great to cook with, beautiful to look at, and healthier for us as well. All of Our Place's products are made without PFAS, also known as Forever Chemicals. In addition to their cookware and tableware, Our Place is also making waves with their Wonder Oven, the most stylish all-in-one air fryer and toaster oven. Again, free from the Forever Chemicals found in many of those air fryers. Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to fromourplace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site-wide. That's fromourplace.com, code MOMHOUR. Okay, Sarah, so we're back and this is such a big topic. And this is one of those where we're like, we got to keep it under an hour this time because we've been really bad about that lately. But I don't know. I'm not sure we can do it. Um, I will just say that I have been reading a quite a few books lately that are a little more contrarian, maybe more kind of like back to the lander type books, homesteady type books, farm life kind of books that even question like, what is the purpose of, uh, the break from like the, the independence that older kids gain? Like what is, the result we want there. Even do we want kids to go out in the world and create their own nuclear families separate from ours? I would say that has been a norm, a value, like a middle-class value in this country for decades. But is that the right one? There are people who would argue that actually 
it makes a lot of sense for kids to go out in the world and then come back to the communities that they left and become useful to right. their families of origin. Right. But that kind of flies in the face of like the way we tend to look at what independence is and healthy, you know, healthy self-actualization and all that. So like we could take it to the, to the most basic level. If we want to start picking apart what sure. successful adulthood looks like or a successful childhood looks like. And I just think it's really interesting to keep in mind that we all have different perspectives on that. And yeah. sometimes the perspectives that are told by the gatekeepers who get articles in the Atlantic yeah. or the New York times or whatever, aren't, they aren't representing every voice and they aren't representing every value system. Um, and we don't always hear those stories told in that kind of media where like the, the, the data is coming from and the universe, like the research universities that are bringing that data to light and all that there's sometimes can be kind of a divide about what people find important. So I just think it's, it's good to lead with that because yeah. we're all, if we're all speaking a different language, then we can't answer a question like what really matters in parenting. It reminds me a little bit of when we did an episode about how we feel about college for our kids. And it's like, it's almost like a good reminder to say, wait, but why? So wait, but why? Like, wait, but why do I think that? Wait, but why is that right. the norm in my community? And if you keep doing wait, but why you'll get all the way, like you said, to very existential questions right. about what yeah. is the purpose of society, community, towns, yeah. um, family structures. And maybe that's not, I mean, most of the moms listening probably aren't having those existential questions while changing diapers and picking out preschool programs. But I guess I'm always grateful for the reminder that like we have deeply built in assumptions about success and happiness that it's always good to have a little bit of um, questioning about, I guess. Yeah. I guess one other thing that I would say before we dive into talking, you know, maybe comparing and contrasting these two articles and like what they say to us and, and how they've played out in our families is the article that was about the one parenting decision that really matters. Um, and actually that was excerpted from a book called something like don't listen to your gut, which I was like, okay, yeah, interesting flex there. Yeah. Don't trust your gut. Okay. Okay. Um, he makes reference to data that suggests that things like reading to your kids, for example, um, doesn't really have an impact. Like it doesn't impact your kids the way that you think it does. And there were some other things listed in there, like, you know, playing with your kids and things like that. I'm actually going to read you the quote because it, I just thought it was this really interesting and it raised my eyebrows. And I think what I said was I'm having a hard time swallowing this. So he says, as Brian Kaplan notes in his 2011 book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. I think I've actually read that book. Um, Parents have only small effects on their children's health, life expectancy, education, and religiosity. It's a big word. Yeah. Though studies have found that they have moderate effects on drug and alcohol use and sexual behavior. And I'm kind of looking at this and saying like, like why, how, like, how is it that we would affect those things? Like these things over here, drug and alcohol use and sexual behavior, which are, are very important things to talk about when we have, especially teen kids, but then have no effect or only a small effect on their health, life expectancy, education, and religion. To me, those things just don't jive. And it makes me think there's something else being teased out by the data that I'm not reflecting in this quick quote. Those two things just don't go together for me. Like, yeah. first of all, drug, alcohol use and sexual behavior do affect kids' health, um, could very much affect their life expectancy and education. 
and religion all plays in. So like even those two things don't quite work out for me, but it Mm -hmm. feels like it's trying to reduce parenting again to like, what can we control and what can't we control? And, and to me, that's not the point of something that's a relationship anyway. Yeah. So that's just like a big rambling thought to start with. And I don't know what you want to do with it, if anything, but I'm just going <laughs> to leave it there. Well, I, I'm ready. I'm ready for okay. you to pass me right. the ball. Well, I think something that jumped out in what you said and whether you agree or disagree with that quote from the article, it begs a bigger question, which is how much does what we're doing on a decision making basis, like how much does it actually, quote unquote, matter in the end or make yeah. a difference? And the article, the other Atlantic article that we pulled that we'll link to is called How to Quit Intensive Parenting. The article is by Elliot Haspel, um, who is a early childhood policy expert and has a book called Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. And I really liked this article. I think the, the reason is data can be useful for us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how and when and whether we use data to like um, I guess validate us or use as guideposts for making parenting decisions. But something about knowing that no matter what we do, there's so much that's going to, our kids are going to turn out the way they're going to turn out. And I actually think that's a, a through line between both articles is that like, we tend to wring our hands and fret over um, how much screen time our kids should watch or like what, what kind of diet they're eating. And I don't know that it's fair to say nothing matters or it doesn't matter at all, but I think both articles would say most of those decisions um, matter less than we think. And there are forces at play that are going to have kids turn out the way they're going to turn out. And to me, that feels actually like an opportunity for parents to let themselves off the hook. So I would like to talk a little bit more than that. It's like almost this, um, this cognitive dissonance between reading and understanding data, but then also like being like, well, I like a lot of this is going to turn out however it's going to turn out. And that to me feels like an opportunity for moms to be a little easier on themselves. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I think it, it's so hard because it's, it becomes a little bit of a mind job. You like go in circles because yeah. if what you're doing doesn't matter the way you think it does, would then not doing it make you a happier mom? Maybe, maybe not. If mm-hmm. the part of the satisfaction that you get out of parenting is feeling like you're putting yourself into it in a certain way, and that can look very different for everybody. Not everyone's great at the same things. Not everything matters to everybody right. the same way. But if it's like, if part of the satisfaction that you get out of this really hard work is that you feel like at the end of the day, you did it your way. To quote Frank Sinatra, like you did it in a way that mattered to you and mm-hmm. represented your values, then that's as valuable as the product, which might be a kid who turns out X, Y, and you know, to be a yep. Nobel Prize laureate or whatever. But if the if you're only doing it to get that result, you're probably just gonna start chasing your tail because you can't guarantee the results. Yeah. And you probably won't get it. And if you didn't enjoy the ride and yes. you weren't doing it because it spoke to you felt deeply right. yeah. or felt right to you, then, then you've really just done a whole lot of, of work that didn't make a difference, yeah. didn't get you the result you wanted and didn't feel good while you were doing it. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in yes. 
we're all trying to chase the same goal as if we all equally care about the same stuff and, and enjoy the stuff we have to do to get that. And then in the end, you might not even get it. Well, right. And I think if we imagine a mom, like a newer mom who was cut off from all parenting articles and forums and Facebook groups and was purely parenting by, um, I guess like instinct or what felt right, or like really relationship driven with the child. Um, it starts to feel like, Oh, wouldn't that be lovely to just really like hone your gut instincts as a mom and all of that. But then what, what occurs to me is that new parents really only know what they experienced growing up. And as we know from family of origin stuff, I think a lot of parents of, of our listeners generation are looking to do things perhaps a little differently than how they grew up. And in Mm -hmm. fact, every generation is, I think (laughs) trying to do things a little differently than how they grew up. And that's where, again, we come back to the data. Okay. So if we're trying to do things a little differently because for whatever reason, it feels like that didn't serve us or we're, you know, we're wanting something else out of our relationship with our child. Then back in comes the data and back in comes these questions of like, okay, well, how do kids turn out when you discipline in this way or when you feed them this way or when you educate them this way? So I don't know, that was a completely circular argument, but I guess like there isn't really a world in which some of this influence of studies and data doesn't impact our parenting in some way. It just does. Well, we don't live in vacuums. No, we are not living outside of the influence of humans. Let's just put it that way. We are social creatures. And I guess that's a good place to mention what the um, article titled the one parenting decision that really matters, what this author is saying is that one thing, the one thing data actually points to as a predictor of your child's success. And that is the neighborhood in which they're raised. And he gives like a whole bunch of reasons why, like what they witness happening around them, um, the kinds of families they see, like whether they're exposed to people at, at all different education levels. So so his argument is that that matters more than what's happening in your home, that you could be, um, you could be a really like a struggling single mom who's, who hardly ever sees your kid because you're working all the time They're and the you also struggle. And- <laughs> yeah. And you're struggling with your own addictions. Say like there could be all of these things happening, but his argument that is that if you're in a neighborhood where they have, you know, considerable access to other ways of being, or like they can kind of they can see other kinds of families and other situations reflected that that has a stronger impact actually than necessarily what's happening in your home. I'm not sure that I disagree with that. Um, I think that I do think it can be as someone who was, you know, raised with fewer options, I think, than some people I knew looking around and seeing those options play out around me. It just gives you a sense of possibility that you might not have otherwise had. I would also argue that books do that. And um, quality programming can do that. Like there's a lot yeah. of ways that can happen. So all that is to say, if we believe that premise, do we then, okay. So we know that like maybe a neighborhood that represents X, Y, and Z to our kids is the predictor of what matters, but how much does that matter to me? What if I want to live in the middle of nowhere and I don't think I need a neighborhood of examples around my kid because they can look around our family and see what they need to see or the value that I hold dear of like, I don't know, 
opting out, opting out of the monetary system, man, whatever I'm just saying is more important to me than finding that utopian neighborhood. And I think it's okay because like, like how much, how much are we, um, how much do we live within the data and how much are we exceptions to the rule? And are any of us exceptions to the rule? And like, how much does the rule matter? I mean, those are all questions that I wouldn't say I was necessarily thinking about while changing diapers, but I've always kind of had that way of looking at the world. Like why, who says like, why does this data even matter? And does it apply to me? And I, I, I'm still questioning it now. When you were starting your family and you moved around a lot, if you had seen this research and, um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did you make big life decisions at all? based on whatever you thought at the time would be quote unquote best for your kids or were your big life decisions like where to live or whether or not to take or quit a job. Were those, were you thinking, was there a filter over of that of like, what's the best eventual outcome for my kids? I'm not sure that, that I would say yes. I I think there's lots of things that go into those decisions, but I'm not sure I was ever like, what is, what's going to put out the best eventual humans. Yeah. Um, when my kids were really little, I do think I thought that way. I tend to be a big picture thinker, no surprise there. And I think that I would be like, okay, well it, it was more like, it wasn't like, okay, if I use cloth diapers, that's going to mean that in 20 years, my kid's going to be a better human. That was not like that. I think what it was more like was what am I saying about the world when I'm making this consumer choice? Like, what am I mm-hmm. opting out of and what am I opting into? And how is that big picture going to come together in some kind of way that's going to impact my family and my kids? And as time went on, I made a lot fewer of those decisions based on that, like either the data or like those little decisions thinking it, it would lead to the bigger ones because I just ran out of energy, honestly, <laughs> time and energy. I'm like, you can't, you can't make every little decision um, to that's like a statement about who you are and what kind of parent you are and what kind of kids you want to raise. At some point you're just like, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm going to buy the fruit snacks because they're there and I'm tired and I want my kid to have a snack. Like I'm not going to go into the ethics of fruit snacks every time, (laughs) every time I want to buy one. Um, but I did a lot of that kind of thinking when my kids were really little and it, it wasn't even necessarily data driven so much as like, what do I think these decisions are saying about me and what am I wanting to like, what, how am I wanting to show up in the world? And, um, you know, you make compromises and then sometimes you circle back around to things several times before you can commit to them and things like that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it it just kind of tells you where my mindset was, I think when my kids were little. Well, and I think you and I are so different in this way. So I, I expected you to say something like that, that you often, um, are really good at that big picture visionary, like almost identity questions thinking. And I can be very much in the day-to-day details. The funny thing is we probably ended up in like on parallel tracks, which is doing our best to make decisions that served us both in the moment and were aligned with some kind of like longer term pillars that felt right to us. Um, and I think when my kids were really small babies, um, 
I was very influenced by both data that I was reading at the time when my first baby was born in 2008. And this is also time specific. So um, I was influenced by things I was reading. I was also influenced by the community where I lived and what the norms were there. Where I lived was not um, like a like super attachment parenting and extended breastfeeding and co-sleeping and natural childbirth and a bunch of things in that bucket were not as prevalent in the place where I lived at that time. If I had lived somewhere else, I could have been easily swept up in some different choices. I guess what I my hope is that like, Underneath it all is like a kind of a hard to define current that probably would have put out the same result in the end. Does that make sense? Like maybe there is totally there is there's something deep within both you and me as moms, our co-parents, our partners and the individual kids that we've birthed that would have probably ended up roughly in the same spot anyway. And maybe that is an opportunity to circle back to like what is the point of all this intensive parenting? And, and that this, this second article that really is like, it all kind of matters, but none of it matters as much as you think. And when you are trying to ace it all, when you're trying to deliver like an A plus in every single category, it actually often works at cross purposes because then we get into things like burnout and all of the things we talk about all the time on this show, moms being like feeling like they have to do all the things well all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, Sarah, you mentioned if you had lived in a place where certain parenting styles were more prevalent, you might've found yourself like looking to that as the data, really like the data, the data you're seeing is that everyone's doing this. So that's therefore the data. And I think I'm just naturally, um, cause it really was not popular at all where I was either is in the Midwest. It was not like an attachment parenting type of place. I think I've always just been a little more contrarian and I'm like looking for things that are, if everyone's doing that, then that's probably not what I want to be doing. I'm looking for something else. Yeah. And then what it does is it takes you around, like you go around and around it and you can find yourself in a purity spiral, regardless of where you are. Like if you're in that uber natural living life, you know, lifestyle, um, where everything is gut and instinct and, um, the closer you are and the, the less mainstream you are, the better that's the purity spiral. If you're in the, uh, if you're in the more like, I'm going to do these things because that's what like the mainstream pediatricians associations are saying I should do that can become a purity spiral. Like it all can become, I agree. Depending I've on never heard that who term. you're surrounding that a real yourself term? with. Or did you just make I that up? I've heard someone say it once and I thought it was so great that I just, yeah, I like it. I've, I've been using it. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you can't get out of that spiral. That's the thing. Well, and it makes you double down. I mean, this is like probably a whole separate episode, but it, it really creates that defensive posturing Um, that we've seen so much, especially in the last few years, where it makes you have to double down on whatever the thing is you have chosen to be pure about. And that is an unhappy, lonely place to be. So we are welcoming back Vionic as a sponsor today. And Sarah, I will be honest, I was sorting through my warmer weather wardrobe the other day, and it could seriously use a refresh. But you know what's good to go? My shoes. I've got a great selection to choose from thanks to the Vionic Vitals collection. And lately, the pair I keep putting on again and again is the Uptown Loafer. I have two pairs, one in sand suede and the other in camel leather. But please don't make me pick a favorite. 
Oh, I won't. I'll let you keep both. That's so funny, Megan, because I was a little jealous of your Uptown loafers. I was the last one on our team to get a pair, but I just did. I also got mine in the sand suede, and I think I've worn them like four times this week. They really finish off a cute spring outfit. The Vionic Vitals collection has the best essential styles for everyday wear to get you ready for spring. And no matter what shoes you choose, you'll be on the go in comfort because every single pair of Vionic shoes delivers their trademark Viomotion technology for a difference you can feel. Vionic sandals, sneakers, and flats all offer incredible support, stability, and cushioning, and every pair comes with a 30-day risk-free trial, so it's easy to try them out. Use code THEMOMHOUR15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's a one-time use only. Vionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Sarah, our sponsor, Haya Health, makes a kid's daily multivitamin that parents can feel great about giving their kids because they have no added sugars or dyes. And our kids who have tried Haya Vitamins have loved them, which is important, right? Because what good is a bottle of vitamins that your kid won't take? Haya was founded by two dads who didn't like the ingredients label on some of the popular children's vitamins they were seeing on store shelves, so they got to work developing a formula that would help fill the most common nutrient gaps in modern kids' diets. Haya's chewable kids vitamin is made with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals. They're also vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, and nut-free. Haya manufactures their vitamins right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, and then they ship their chewable vitamins directly to your door on a pediatrician-recommended schedule. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. You're going to get 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash MomHour. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash MomHour and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Okay, Megan, let's circle back to, to this whole like, wait, but why is that the definition of success? We talked about how in the One Parenting Decision That Really Matters article, it, it rubbed you a little bit the wrong way that he used... Uh, education level and income as like, okay, so these are the kids who are quote unquote successful. So I guess I'd love to talk about what are our definitions of quote unquote successful parenting. And I'm curious, like when your family was very young, did, did you think about that? And, and did you, were the parenting decisions you made really going towards some kind of definition of success? Yeah, I think Sarah, in the first half, you touched on how you can be kind of, um, and I think that we just know this about each other, that yeah. you tend to be more of like a, let's me, let me do the thing I have to do today. Right. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be more like a, what is this going to mean in what 20 years mean? kind of a thing. And I think what that meant was that sometimes I, uh, I would look at everything in such big, broad, long range terms that I would have these philosophies about the way I wanted to do life, but then sometimes would not set up things. <laughs> I wouldn't set up the details yeah. in a way that really served me. And I'm going to guess you're like maybe the opposite there. Um, like the things that would have been really useful in helping me get through the day, I didn't get around to because I was so, it's not like you can't see the forest for the trees. I couldn't see the trees for the forest. Well, uh, yeah. So, let me just jump in and put language yeah. around mine in case somebody's new listening or just like the, the side by side is helpful. I think we are just exactly inverse in this area. So I 
could get very, very into the stage of parenting I was in. I mean, toddler behavior and discipline. Like I could have written one of those books because I just was so immersed. And now I'm pretty into like adolescence and like really looking at um, not just data, but also asking myself questions and thinking about it and talking to people about it, but very state age and stage specific. But for me, like it is forest for the trees. It's like, I sometimes forget to ask the question like, but what is the larger point? What am I actually trying to do here? It's great that this is the best way to handle a a three-year-old's tantrum, but like at not at what cost, that's not the phrase I'm looking for, but like to what end, like what, what is the, what is the 20 year end goal? So we, I truly think we're inverse of each other in this way. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, I think you're totally right. And then there's pros and cons to both. Let's just put it that way. I think that when my kids were really little, to answer your question, I was really looking at like, again, that idea of what kind of family do I want to have? What kind of person do I want to be? How do I want to show up in the world? And I will say now having three adult kids and two very quickly on their way to becoming adults, um, I don't know. Like, I feel like the jury is still out on whether my parenting has worked in any way, because I'm looking at them now and thinking, man, if I had expectations around these kids that were more of the data-driven mainstream, like the thing, the predictors of success or the indicators of success, if that's what I was looking at right now, I don't know that I'd be batting a great average. I'm not going to throw out a number because I'm really bad with baseball stats and it would be wrong, but it it wouldn't, it would not be impressive. Let's just put it that way. I'm not sure anybody would be like, like putting money on my family churning out, uh, you know, like, like some huge success story that said, I still think it's happening. It's just like happening in our particular way, which is not like the way anybody else does stuff. And I'm not really worried about it. Although I do have concerns about each of my kids individually and I want them all to thrive and succeed. And I want them to flourish really like on an individual level, I'm really willing to let them each take a lot of time to get there and offer like the right kind of support for each of them. Because I kind of look sometimes at kids who are 18 years old and seem like they have it all together. And I think this is BS. There's just no way. And I know that's actually probably not the case. There probably are a lot of 18-year-old kids who are just amazing and are never going to fall on their faces. But I think most of them are going to fall on their faces in some way. It just might not ever be something other people see. And with my family, like it's just, we're all over the place. Like you can look at us and see the the stumbling and the falling and the flopping. Um, and I guess I'm a little unembarrassed about it in a way while yeah. still being self-conscious about it. It's, it's a really weird place I'm at with adult kid parenting right now. And I'm just going to like, leave it there. Cause I don't want to say too much about my specific kids or make it sound like we're a train wreck. I guess what I'm just saying is like falling on your face is the human condition. Well, that's yes. And I, exactly. <laughs> and I don't feel inoculated against that. And I wouldn't have no matter how I parented. And so I guess things turned out, I guess, more or less like I would have thought maybe with some bumps I didn't see coming. So I think that what you just said is like what I hope every parent of tiny kids takes away. And what I feel like I'm learning in this stage of my life, which is like solving for an existence, yourself, yours or your children's, where there is no 
really hard time. And I mean, really hard time, like hard crap, addiction, falling on your face, getting kicked out of something, getting in trouble, like the, like not just like having a bad day or getting a C in chemistry. Sometimes I think we give lip service to wanting our kids to experience like hardship and have to like pick themselves up and experience failure. But then we do it in this very safe, like then we use examples like not getting straight A's or, you know, like having right, a breakup. It's like the cute, yeah. it's like the cute hard. Yes. And so yeah. I think holding up a definition of success for yourself or your kids that includes a, a life free from that kind of really big struggles and stumbles is such a fallacy and such a, um, a, a missed opportunity to see that true falling down as part of the human experience, which is what you said, which is why I wanted to circle back to it. Um, and I think that's a really good way to take us into this fallacy that everything we do is going to like guarantee some kind of outcome. And what I loved about the intensive parenting article is it doesn't, it doesn't say that nothing matters or that you should just give up it. In fact, like I think says that things do matter but when we try so hard, we're we're missing out on our own experience of parenting, or at least that's that's my interpretation. And it's not making mm. any additional. It's not like there's a point of diminishing returns. And I'm is it if it's OK, I'm going to read this quote um, yeah. and about good enough parenting because I loved it. So I'm talking about like trying but not trying too hard. Good enough parenting. Good enough does not mean mediocre or apathetic. The not good enough parent is real but requires acknowledging the point beyond which attempts at further optimization cause more harm than good. Given reasonable conditions and plenty of love, there are many ways in which kids can have happy childhoods and emerge as healthy, conscientious, successful adults. The developmental psychologist and philosopher Alison Gopnik likens this approach to gardening, where intensive parents are carpenters, hammering children into a particular shape one stroke at a time. Gardening parents pour their labor into creating preconditions of love of love, safety, and stability for their kids to grow in potentially unpredictable ways. And that's exactly kind of what you were saying, Megan, that yeah. like you've never been so attached to what the outcome looks like and you've left room for those potentially unpredictable ways that your kids are going to get from zero to, I don't know, what is finished? Yeah. 30 anymore? Yeah, there's, like I'm not well, finished. It- is there a finish? No. I mean, I'm still growing. Like, yeah. I still think sometimes, like, if my mom were alive right now, what would she think of me right now? Like, what would she think of the growth I've had in the last five years? How much credit would she take? Yeah. How much How yes. much was I just not, of her good parenting, was I just not ready to incorporate into my life 25 years ago or 20 years ago? Like, it's still, the fruits are still emerging um, if we're going to stick with the garden, yeah. <laughs> with the gardening analogy. And, you know, right now, a couple of my kids are in phases where there's like caterpillars crawling all over them and chewing holes in their leaves. And <laughs> like, it's how do I, sometimes there's just like an early frost or a blight uh, and I can do what I can do. Um, but it's not, they're not like non-organic material. They're not metal that I can shape. So it's a really good or wood or whatever. This, it's a very good analogy because it takes into account that there are factors outside of your control. It's not that the fertilizer didn't matter. Yeah. It's just that sometimes, you know, the, the weather is bad or, um, their roots didn't get in deep enough or whatever. Like we could take this in many directions. Yeah. And 
we could take the the gardening analogy all the way. Yep. I'm here for it if you want yeah. to. Yeah. But you get my point. You get my point. I do. And I also think it um it leaves so much room for moms, since this is a show for and about moms and motherhood. It's such a load off of uh, the responsibility we feel to do everything, quote unquote, correctly, whichever purity spiral you choose back to your great phrase. I feel like this good enough is the reminder that we are allowed to take care of ourselves and mm-hmm. to um, like ease back. I think there's another quote and I don't know if we were going to read it, but like where there are dials. I really liked how. Yeah, this oh, author- I want to read that. Yeah, one yeah, yeah. That was my because yeah. all the dials. Anyway, you read it and then we'll talk about the dials. Yeah. So um, same article. She says. Research suggests that certain dials, such as display love, validate feelings, and set aside some regular quality time, should be absolutely turned up to 10. Others, such as solve your child's non-serious problem for them, should be pretty low. And she goes on to say that others, like offer enrichment activities, should be somewhere in the center. But this is the part I think is the best. Your exact dial settings will depend on your values and your family situation, of course. All 10s and all ones are almost always a bad idea. So if you've got everything cranked all the time, not good. If everything's low, like no effort or, or any of it, not no input at all, not good. But if the inputs are kind of like, you know, the ones that really matter to you and your family are high and the other ones are, you know, low to medium, we've got some balance going. And I, Sarah, I loved what you were saying about and that what you've kind of come back to three or four times now is that mom's experience matters too. And I would argue that if we're parenting for um, our own values, yeah. we almost can't go wrong yes. unless our values are be a train robbering murderer. Yeah. Then, or, then we've got a problem. We're like having so much, I guess, baggage and conditioning yeah. from whatever we came from that we're not that able we can't to step outside see. Of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I love the dials analogy too. I think Elliot, I did look Elliot is a he, um, I think just in case there's any confusion, I think you said she, and I said he, and oh, then I just you're right, looked, you're right. but, um, I do think it's funny. I also thought this second article was written by, a I woman. assumed it was written by a mom. Cause we I liked didn't it look more. at the name. I guess I have to say it. Like <laughs> I just, I kept thinking, Oh, this one's got great quotes and it just, yeah. um, the feeling felt different to me. Yeah. And the other one just felt kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do with this yeah. information? Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not to slam the writer, just no. that was a feeling. It's, just our, it's our own. Yeah. It's also our own biases showing, which is okay. Yeah, Cause I think it's good to own those. Anyway, I also, in fact, I went so far as to see if it was a lady Elliot, cause there are some, but there are, he's some, a he, yeah. um, So I love this dial analogy so much. And I feel like a lot of the work that I've done this year in therapy and stuff is just continuing to remember that nothing is either or and like uh, having the ability to dim or to dial down without like then swinging back in the opposite direction. Like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so self-critical. I'm such a perfectionist. Okay, great. I'm just going to go with the flow and like care about nothing. It's like, okay, well that's right. That's also not. So this all tens and all ones is a really powerful visual for me, but also thinking of a bunch of dials stacked up against the mom next door to you or your sister or like your best friend and thinking about like, yeah, there are probably some dials that most of us, like she, uh, he says, um, you know, a few like love your kid and try to spend regular time with your kid that most people are going to have turned up pretty high. And then 
others that maybe are pretty low, but thinking of one mom's dials next to another's, they're just not going to all be the same. And that's also totally okay. Well, and I think that, you know, I've noticed since one of the reasons I got into blogging in the first place was that even in the early 2000s, that dichotomy, that like false, I don't know, false binary kind of, sorry, false binary. Thank you. Between like hot mess mom, they weren't calling it hot mess in those days, but you know what I mean? Like, like the try hard mom and the hot mess mom. It was like, you had to pick which side you were on. And I was like, well, what about the ones who are trying, but also kind of a mess or you can, to something you just said, Sarah, you can care deeply about things, but you can also know that in the stage you're in in parenting, you can't act on that. And I think that's something that, um, I'm really learning as my kids have gotten older and I've kind of cycled through different stages or different places where my ability to engage with certain issues was sometimes higher, sometimes lower. So yeah. just as an example, cause it's kind of taking me back full circle now that I'm in my mid forties and my kids are older and my time has freed up when I was in my early twenties and had, you know, little kids, not much money, but tons of time to read and think and like, you know, not tons of time to read when you have little kids, but they were like be- little babies and I was pregnant and like, they weren't talking you know, doing you. a lot of nursing yeah. reading. They weren't talking at me yet and they weren't getting into stuff yet. And there was a lot of thinking about like the global food system. How do I feel like I want to engage with that? And I had really high ideals. And then, you know, guess what? At one point I had five kids uh, to drive around and feed. And a lot of those ideals didn't go out the window. I still felt strongly about things. It's just that they got kind of set aside mm-hmm. for later. I wasn't able to engage with them in the same way at that point of my life. And that's okay. Like yep. there, and there's lots of those examples. That's just one that I'm going to pull yep. out. Um, it felt at the beginning, it felt like a parenting issue. Then as I got into parenting, I thought, no, this is more like a me thing. Mm-hmm. And right now I just need to set that aside so that I can do this parenting that I have to do. That's more present. Like it's more immediately present in my life right now. Are there different choices I could have made at any stage that would have allowed me to like engage with that topic more deeply for sure. Mm-hmm. I just didn't because of other things. Mm-hmm. So you see what I'm saying though? Like, it's not like you opt in or opt out and you can never go back or you can never make a different choice or you can never circle back around to something. You can care deeply about things. And just say right now, it's just not much I can do, yep. or I'm going to do this one little thing and I'll hold the rest for later. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think we have probably reached our, <laughs> it's either now or never now, or we talk for another we hour. We need to stop or we got another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe okay. there's a part two where <laughs> listeners can tell us like which part of this feels like they'd like to hear more about or what we missed. Um, I know I had, um, the Emily Oster, who's the data scientist, I believe, and parenting writer that I know a lot of our listeners looked to, especially through the COVID times. Um, I, I think she is a really interesting place in the parenting community because I think, I believe what she's trying to do is calm parents down quite a bit. And I love the idea of data, um, helping us sort of let go of a lot of our, um, like preconceived notions about what really matters. So I do feel like there are, there's more here to uncover. Um, and that was just one of the things that I, I thought we might get to, but we didn't. So I'm just opening this up to listeners. Email us hello at the Um, if 
you are nodding along or feel like you want to keep going with this conversation and we'll just, we'll see what, what kind of part two emerges. What do you think of that? Part two. Uh, Absolutely. Cause now I'm realizing like we didn't even get to four or five things on this list. So I know, which we knew (laughs) we will, we will. Um, I know. Hey, speaking of none of that, I just want to mention that we speaking <laughs> apropos of absolutely yeah, nothing segueing yes. awkwardly into the fact that we are together this week. So listeners, as we you are. hear this on a Tuesday, on the Wednesday of that very same week, we will be together in Dallas, which is the city we go when we only want to take one airplane each. It is the only, it's the only is place the to go, only hub where both of our small airports have a direct flight. Um, And we get together at least twice a year, mostly to talk about high level things within our business and just be together as friends. So if you like the silly Instagrams and stuff we share when we are together, be sure you're following us at the mom hour. Um, That is where we'll be this coming week, Wednesday through Saturday. And you never know. Sometimes there's like a Instagram live that happens. Sometimes we record an episode. So that's very exciting in our world because we live 2000 miles apart. And it's been too long since we've seen each other. So yeah. I cannot wait. And we've also got a More Than Mom coming up this Sunday. So listen in for that. Yeah, then we're going to be talking about our 2022 goals and intentions that we set and how we're doing. So spoiler alert, I mean, not great across the board, but that's part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Mom Hour. Everything we talked about in today's episode is available at themomhour.com. And hey, while you're there, you can find more than 500 podcast episodes, plus articles, playlists, and resources about motherhood and parenting at every stage. And if you liked today's episode, we'd love it if you would take a minute to share the show with another mom in your life. You can also find us on Instagram at The Mom Hour, chatting and interacting with listeners between episodes. Thanks for being here, friends. We'll talk to you soon. Guess what, Megan? Over 10,000 teens are already using our sponsor, Erica, to help them unplug. That is amazing. Erica, that's Erica with a K, is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug whenever they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. It's so cool how this works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Yeah, you know, teens really get that social media comes with risks, including addiction. And Erica helps them build healthy habits in self-regulation that will benefit them their whole lives. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Teas Made. I launched back in November, and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. Well, you know I am fan number one of The Teas Made. It's got such a cozy vibe, and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines, and home and family life. Just look for The Teas Made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.